She's a special agent in charge of the Phoenix Office of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Here to talk about a case that involved staging a murder to keep someone alive. The Mexican Mafia, armed and dangerous drug gangs, and much more. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Hi, if you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you've got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today radio show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. On Twitter, follow L-E-T radio show P-O-1. On Instagram, follow L-E-T radio show podcast. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Calling us from Phoenix, Arizona, we have Sherry Oz on the phone. Sherry is the special agent in charge of the Phoenix office of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Sherry, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day and spending us here in the Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. Happy to be here. And by the way, I'm trying to get much better saying thank you for your service because I am really uncomfortable when people say that to me. And I never know how to respond, so I want to thank you for your service in the DEA, and also as a police officer as well. All very much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Thank you. It also, you find it difficult to respond to that as well. I do. I do. It, isn't it crazy? Because I'm called. It, it is. It's my duty, but I, I'm called to this profession. You know, it's something you you can't even discuss. It's just what we we do. It is. And here here's part of my philosophy is. You know, we in law enforcement have relied on the news media to tell our stories for so for so long, and they've done a horrible job. And lately, they're so biased in reporting, and everything's got a political slant to it. And if you've been listening to the show for any period of time, you know why I don't discuss partisan politics on a show. It's never part of the conversation. And in the policing law enforcement world, it's never really part of that world either. So one of the things is the news media has become so biased that part of the reason why I started this show is for people to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, what really happens in law enforcement. If we don't tell them, how are they going to know? I agree. And by the way, the DEA has uh, is one of the agencies, I jokingly call them the alphabet agencies, the federal agencies, that have the utmost respect for most cops I know. I was detailed to DEA in Baltimore for almost two years. And great agents, and a lot of them come from law enforcement backgrounds, like yourself as a police officer, which we will talk about. But first, I want to talk about something. I don't know of a family that's not been negatively impacted in the United States by fentanyl and opioids, whether it be near-death experiences or people actually dying. And it is, I know the media uses terms like epidemic. I can't stand those terms, but it seems to be absolutely everywhere and no stopping this. Yes. To your point, there's not a family who doesn't know somebody or has a direct link or heard a story of a friend 
fentanyl is everywhere, and it is so dangerous, and it is killing people. And back in my day, we had lots of heroin addicts that lived a long time. We had many who died from overdoses. And by the way, the funny thing is, when someone dies, or two or three people die of a drug overdose in, in Baltimore and other major American cities, all the junkies go there because they, they, they get hot shots and they can cut a little bit. So it becomes very much in demand. But this seems to be, and I live in South Florida, we have a lot of recovering people here. People that have gotten clean and sober, have turned their lives around, and then they go out, they use the, the medical term, relapse, they slip, they pick up, they do heroin with fentanyl one time, and they're dead. And they're, they're 25 years of age, and it's over. Right. So last year in Arizona, my guys, uh, the men and women of DEA here, seized 6 million fentanyl pills. Six million. The population of Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is at, has a population of six million. So if that gives you an idea of how many lives we've, we've saved just just in taking drugs that didn't make it to the the user chain, when That's fentanyl first hit the scene in Miami, there were people coming to the police station to use their heroin because the heroin was containing fentanyl because they knew they might die. But it, it was a chance that they were willing to take because the high that they were chasing was so much better with fentanyl, heroin with fentanyl, that they were going to the parking lot of the police station. Because if they overdosed there, they were confident we would get them help and give them Narcan, Naloxone, to, so that they can live to get high another day. I talked to a friend of mine just last night, and he talked about being in a, a drugstore, a very popular drugstore across the United States. And... Over by where people load up their camera, their camera photos for printing out, there was a, a young man who had clearly overdosed. He was totally unconscious. And the paramedics got there, and people might be shocked when they hear this. When you encounter someone who's potentially uh, overdosed, you, you got to be kind of rough on them to make sure they're not just sleeping. So one of the things they did is they grabbed him by the hair, shook him a little bit, no response. Then they took their knuckles and dug it into his sternum, no response. Then immediately the paramedics said, Narcan. Gave him the shot, and when he came to, like many people, he was violent. And it was as if you you ruined his high and you ruined his whole day. Yes, they are very angry. That happened to me when I was a young patrol officer. I found a guy in the back of a truck. I was just driving by, and he was dead. I really, I checked him. To me, he was dead. I sternum rubbed him, unresponsive. I called fire. They came out. They gave him that shot, and he was up and fighting with me in, within seconds. And he was so angry with me, and I, I really thought that the guy was dead. And I saw, and then, and then right after that, the immediate withdrawal starts, so the, the vomiting and the um, uncontrollable. So the guy is fighting you. He's probably mm-hmm. throwing up on you and yes. defecating all at the same time. Thanks yes. for saving. That's a thanks you get for saving his life, right? That's that's police officers every day. That's exactly how we get thanked. And that's the reality of it. So, uh, I'm glad you shared that because for far too long, people have become immune or, hey, this only happens in th- the, the poor sections of town. This only happens in the high crime areas of town. And it doesn't. It happens everywhere. And you said earlier in the conversation, I don't know of a family who isn't either directly impacted by one of their children or their spouse, or they have extended family member who has a problem with opioids and or fentanyl and has come close to death and or died. I don't know of one. I can't 
think I'm one. And I could tell you story after story, police officers who work narcotics, who have children, who take one pill one time and they die. Yeah. And these are these are men and women who dedicate their life to fighting narcotics and fighting cartels and fighting gangs. And it, it ends up hitting their own families and devastating them. One pill, one time. And the, the problem with fentanyl, and especially these, these newer analogs that are stronger even than, than the fentanyl that we're, we're first seeing, is that not only is it physically and psychologically, physiologically, extremely addictive if you if you survive it but oftentimes the user doesn't know what they are addicted to because fentanyl is a powder and it can be put in anything so it can be put in your cocaine in your methamphetamine it can be pressed to look like Adderall or pressed to look like Xanax so the pills that you're taking people keep talking about these M30s the blue counterfeit um, oxycodones and, and yes, that is a, a common pill that we see, but fentanyl can be in anything. Any pill that you are buying illicitly on the street could contain fentanyl. Cocaine, marijuana, heroin, it, it is in everything. We're going to take a short break. Video. We're talking with Sherry Oz. Sherry is the special agent in charge of the Phoenix Office of the Drug Enforcement Administration. We return to the Law Enforcement Today show. We're talking about... The problems with opioids, fentanyl, methamphetamine, other dangerous drugs, and her law enforcement career. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Return conversation with Sherry Oz on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Sherry is the special agent in charge, SAC, of the Phoenix Office of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Now, what that means in plain speak is she's number one in that office, that she's the boss, and everybody reports to her. That doesn't mean she doesn't have a boss. She does. It's just they're not in Phoenix. How long have you been with the DEA now, Sherry? So I'm working on 18 years. And before that, you were a Phoenix police officer, correct? I was. And that's I, why I like I, the DEA so much. So many, so many of their people are former cops. And same with the ATF. Absolutely. Um, and I started with Phoenix in the late 90s. Uh, and I, I went through patrol. I was a field training officer. And then I promoted to detectives. And I worked organized crime before I switched over to DEA. And why did you make the change from local law enforcement to federal? Was it something that was on your radar for a while? It was. So in in high school, I kind of knew what I didn't want to do. I, I knew I didn't want to wear a suit and sit behind a desk. And I say that, and I wear a suit now and sit behind a desk. But that's different. Uh, that won't attract me. And I, I loved the hunt. I loved the idea of really helping people when they needed it. And so everything about law enforcement called to me. And DEA was kind of my focus because I thought they were sexy, I guess. is I can't think of a better word. Well, you grew um, up so watching the, the Miami Vice days, didn't you? Yeah, of course. Of course. Did that impact so your decision at all about DEA? Sure. I think, um, I think also that 
that DEA goes after the worst and most violent criminals. Right. So I wanted to be the most impactful law enforcement officer I could be. And I felt like DEA was that that spot. I loved working undercover. I loved um, kind of the covert side of, of what DEA did. And I felt like it would give me the full experience. So I met a DEA agent and he told me to become a DEA agent, you need to go to college. Um, you need to be a police officer. You need to learn Spanish and you need to get your master's. And so I did all of those things exactly in the order that he, he told me to do it because that was always my my goal. I didn't apply to any other federal agencies. I just wanted to be a DEA agent. And by the way, I think I'm a pretty busy guy. And people joke, where do you find time to get all this stuff done? You make me sound like an underachiever. Sherry has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Criminology and Law Studies with a double minor in Psychology and in Sociology from Marquette University. She pursued a Master's of Education degree in Education and Leadership from Northern Arizona University. You know what I majored in in college? Drinking. That was it. <laughs> and by the well, way, was I was top of my of class it. in that. I was great at that. <laughs> that was a fair part of... Uh of my college experience as well. I was a bartender. Yeah. Oh, okay. My, my wife is, is a former bartender and uh, she's one of those people seen it all, done it all, got the t-shirts. She can tell you what's missing from the equation is the law enforcement part. You talked earlier, two things that really resonated with me, Sherry, as you said, when we talked about the thank you for your service thing, I'm still uncomfortable with it. For me, it was very much a calling. I wanted to be a priest first. I was in the seminary and I, I just, didn't have the calling for the celibacy part. Uh, Police work became the immediate second go-to when I made that decision. And for you, you said it was a calling. And I can't think of a better terminology. It's almost like a vocation. Absolutely. Because I think if you try to deny this of yourself, you're never happy. And we don't get a lot. You don't do it for the money. I'm not going to be rich. I know I'll never be rich. And that's okay. I, I do it because it the work satisfies me. It gives me great joy and to know that I'm protecting people, even those people who don't want to be protected, even those people that don't know that they were going to be victims. I have satisfaction in, in justice. And that's with a total of 23 years working in law enforcement. Yes. That's great to hear because so many times we hear that everybody's disillusioned People are leaving, they're getting their 20 or 25, whatever it is, and they're and retiring and saying, goodbye, I'm done, I don't want this anymore because of what we don't talk about on the show. We don't talk about politics. And I'm so glad, it's refreshing to hear someone like you who has a passion for what you do. And it's not easy. It, it's not, this is not a job that is ever going to be easy. But if it was easy, everyone would do it. And I don't want it to be easy. It should be hard. It should be. It should challenge you every day, because that keeps you fresh. If you're not, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not really learning. I, I try to learn something every day, and it's hard now when I have young agents that are coming on and they are disillusioned and they get beat up in the media, and they're afraid. They're afraid of their futures. They're afraid um, to do the right thing. But we have to keep going if we don't stop evil nobody's going to do it and if it's not me then who and you're you're right about getting beat up by the media but that's not a new problem that's cyclical and it it was going on when i was a rookie and i hate to tell you when i was a rookie it was 1980 uh so it's a long time ago the difference is we didn't have social media then which is non-stop 
and the loudest, squeakiest wheel gets the grease, and a lot of people responding to that. One of the things that we always have to say to to law enforcement officers, and we had the conversations even back then in the 80s, because it was, it was rough, it was very rough, and a lot of people got hurt, a lot of people died, and I'm talking about the people we worked with. Quite a few police got killed as well, and many maimed for life. What we had mm-hmm. to say is, why did you sign up for this job? Remember that, and keep that as your, your motivation for doing what you do. Right. I came on in the 90s, and it was right after the police uh, were really kind of reinventing ourselves after the Rodney King incident. And it was hard then, and I keep telling my new guys now, it's hard, but we're, we're going to be okay. Society needs protectors, and that's what you are called to do. And so we, we go through this process, and like you said, it's cyclical. And we look at ourselves, and we take a very deep look at look at policing. What can we fix? What can we change? How can we communicate better? What more should we be sharing? What should we not be sharing? And we reevaluate all those things, and we make changes that do end up making us better, stronger, and and then we carry on. And and it becomes, you know, it goes away for a while, and people like us again. And then, you know, ten years from now, we'll have a similar thing. Right. We'll get through this. Are you experiencing that in your role as uh, special agent in charge? I know you you were involved with recruiting for DEA for a while as well. Are you experiencing that where you have to talk people off the ledge, so to speak? Absolutely. And I, just like you, I tell them, remember the day you were hired. Your heart was pure. It was absolutely pure. You were doing this for all the right reasons. And society beats us up so much that we start getting angry and bitter and get disillusioned because it's hard to not be liked, to have all that negativity. And so you have to go back to what originally motivated you. Remember your first day, because that was the day that you had all the potential, all the motivation. It's difficult to find people now, good recruits. It's good. It's hard to hire qualified, motivated people who are answering a calling. Do me a big favor. When you we get done this interview, uh, thank your agents that, that work in your office for me for all that they do. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. We'll return to our conversation with Sherry Oz, Special Agent in Charge of the Phoenix DEA Office. Don't go anywhere. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Welcome back to the Law Enforcement Today show. We're talking with Sherry Oz. By the way, the last name Oz and Law Enforcement, I just think it's a winner. I don't know why. Maybe it's, wasn't there a prison show on television a long time ago with Oz in there? 
Yes, there was. It was HBO. Okay. I never watched it, by the way, because those things are never accurate. If the police shows are bad. The prison shows are, are worse, if you ask me. Sherry is the special agent in charge of the DEA office in Phoenix, Arizona. And I remember, uh, to this day, and as a matter of fact, I just made contact with the DEA agent that recruited me, for lack of better words, to join the task force uh, on investigating violent Jamaican drug gangs in D.C. and Baltimore. And we connected through Facebook. And it turns out she lives about 30 minutes from me, her and her husband, which is great. But I remember the day I got called down from our drug enforcement office in the district to meet someone, and it was Special Agent Helen Reyna. And she, you know so-and-so? Yeah. You know so-and-so? Yeah. And I had my little book and my information. And that's how it all came. I was so impressed with the resources the methods, the things that the DEA had at their disposal that we could never dream of, and some of the operations they did, I learned later on, blows my mind. You have one in particular that is a mind-blowing story that involved members of the Mexican Mafia, if I'm correct? Yes, sir. So back in, uh, Mexican Mafia is the largest and most established prison gang in the United States. It is the most active prison gang, and they control a lot of um, street-level narcotics and street-level gangs throughout, mostly in California, um, this particular sect, uh, and this case is in California, but it's, um, their range of control is uh, profound. They do a lot of weapons trafficking, they do a lot of narcotics trafficking, uh, and then the violence that is associated with gangs is always a, you know, a big problem, especially in, in in neighborhoods that are uh, economically challenged. Yeah. And then, by the way, you, you made a great word that you used in your conversation describing them. They're very violent. Extreme, they're shot callers that get people executed oftentimes are in prison, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And and they're making all those calls from a prison cell. And they're, they're counting on uh, second and third tier gangsters to, to carry out those orders. Mexican Mafia has a, a couple of, there's 168, at the time of this case, there were 168 made members of the Mexican Mafia. So those were the, the shot callers. Those different neighborhoods would be given, people would get the keys to different neighborhoods. It's called getting the keys so that they could run and tax those, those neighborhoods, the, the drug sales, the gun sales in those neighborhoods. And then they, they have to give a portion, a large portion, back to the made member who is controlling their their areas. At the time the investigation you're referring to, or you'll be talking about, there were 168 made members. I want people just to pause for a moment and imagine five Greyhound-style buses filled with people. That's less than the amount of made Mexican Mafia members that were involved. And I don't know of anybody in the United States that doesn't know these cats. Right. They are dangerous, deadly, um, and they're always involved in some kind of conspiracy. And how did your office get involved in a case involving them? So back in uh, the earlier 2000s, we had a mobile enforcement team. And the mobile enforcement team was a DEA program that was designed to travel to where there were narcotics issues, violence issues, uh, more street-level type problems that we could address and put some resources to to help the community. So we were asked by San Bernardino, California, to respond and come help them with their their narcotics. So we partnered up with San Bernardino PD, who were awesome, awesome guys, so motivated, so excited about cleaning up their community. 
Uh, they worked super hard. We worked with Riverside PD, FBI a little bit, ATF. We we get as many people involved as resources um, to share resources and put all we can into an investigation. So we were asked to go out to the neighborhood. We found it to be um, ex- overrun with gangsters. There were uh, in in excess of ten different uh, Hispanic criminal street gangs that were working, all giving their proceeds up to these these Mexican mafia um, made members that were sitting in prison. One of the made members had been recently released and was living in uh, in the area that we were investigating. Uh, were these a, were these a violent group? Super violent. So it. As we start investigating, we realize that this is a lot bigger than we, we thought it was. There are a lot of murders that are uh, suspected to be at the hands of these um, of these guys. And also in this area, which was unique, there was an Indian reservation. So we had the Sam Manuel Mission Band of Indians that lived in the San Bernardino area. And the Sam Manuel Reservation is a reservation that, that profits. They have a casino. And each of the members of the um, of the tribe make in excess of a hundred thousand dollars per month, in addition to just in gambling, you know, dividends that they could they get for being members of this tribe. So very difficult because those kids grew up in the gang-filled neighborhood and already pledged gangs while they were, were economically challenged. Now all of a sudden you have gangsters that have a lot of money which is dangerous because now we have a $100,000 income and now they can afford to finance their gang. So instead of buying a house and a car and an education, they're instead uh, buying drugs and guns and toys for members of the the gang. Uh, It reminds me of the old Warren Zavon song. I believe it's Lawyers, Guns, and Money. And every time I hear that song, because I'm also a FM music radio DJ, Every time I hear that song, I think of my days working with the DEA because all those things go hand in hand. I'm not saying anything negative about lawyers, trust me, on this one. But it's a vicious cycle. And the amount of violence that I remember happening way back in the day, I think pales in comparison to what you all are experiencing now. Right. So, and just one part of this case all these gangsters that were also uh, Indian tribal members were in a bar. And they, the bartenders, oh, hey, time to close. It's closing time. You know, there's a state mandate. you got to close at whatever time. And the gangsters refused to leave. And the bartender came out of the manager and he said, no, it, you got to go. It's, the bar's closed. And they threw down the name of the maid member and said, do you know who this guy is? And so the manager responded with an explicative and said, that guy. And they ordered his death. For saying that in public, they green-lighted him, and, and we were made aware of that, that they ordered his death for, for one little phrase, one time, because he disrespected the made member of the mafia. Was he killed, or did he somehow survive? Well, <laughs> I went and got him once I knew, and I sat him down and said, hey, here's what happened. And here's what we know, and here's what we think is going to happen to you. And so you have a couple choices. And he said, can you help me disappear? And so we said yes. So we actually took the contract. Um, I had 
I had an informant that I was working with. I was his you know, girlfriend. Uh, we took the contract to murder this guy, and then we made him disappear. And, we, and he went and hid basically on his own, waiting for our case to conclude so that he could stay safe. So, so we faked the murder. We came back and reported that we actually did do it. They, they actually provided us a gun so that we could complete the murder. We reported that it was done and then um, and kept the guy hidden. Which uh, The case only lasted seven months before we, we rounded everyone up. So he stayed hidden for all that time. We're going to take a Very short recently. break. We are talking with Sherry Oz. She is the special agent in charge of the Phoenix Office of the Drug Enforcement Administration. When we return, we're going to talk more about this fascinating case involving a term that's used in law, reasonable subterfuge. We'll explain when we return. And if you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603. 800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. Return conversation with Sherry Oz. She is the special agent in charge of the DEA office in Phoenix, Arizona. 17 years in DEA, six years in the Phoenix Police Department. And before we went to break, Sherry, we were talking about this case you had involving Mexican mafia and death threats. And you guys, I say guys, by the way, I don't want anyone getting upset. That means men and women in our world. It doesn't doesn't really matter. Uh, It's not gender specific. You guys staged a murder of what would have been the victim. Immediately, I thought of Jay Dobbins with ATF and and kind of fabricating what looked like a murder so that he could gain some credibility. It's amazing that you guys have the the thought processes to pull this off because you got to think like a grandma quite often to catch them. And then the ability to do it, the means and all the resources, it's amazing. Well, it's funny that you bring up Jay Dobbins because I actually worked with him on that case. So Get this out. is not a new idea for me. I did. So this is not a new idea for me because um, I had seen it done before. So I, I knew we could do it. That's amazing. I've talked to Jay before. I've got to get him on the show sometime in the future. I know he's a busy guy. So you, I don't want to go back to that case because that's a different case. I'm just fascinated with they're going to kill this guy. The Mexican Mafia has got a hit on this guy. You guys pose as the contract killers and then stage the murder. How did you pull that off in in terms that, that won't violate your case? So, it, interestingly enough, um, when I first started the case, there was rumors that there was a, a guy that was in prison that wanted to flip. And so, I went. I went and talked to him. And he did. And he wanted to be informant. But he was in prison. He was serving a 30-year sentence. Or was about to. I don't think he had been sentenced yet. And so it was a lot of work. 
but I got him out of prison. And I got him, uh, basically, I was responsible for him 24-7, um, myself and my team, obviously. And it took a lot of us to, <laughs> to keep him uh, contained and secure. And um, then I worked, went undercover as his girlfriend. And then we brought my brother, who was another DEA agent, um, into play, who was also a, a contract killer. So we were able to take that contract and pretend like he had been killed. We gave very specific details to make it believable. And in the meantime, we, we got the intended victim out of state so he wouldn't be discovered that he was alive. And no one really missed him. And they, well, I shouldn't say that. People did miss him. They knew he was gone and they assumed that we had done it. So it's kind of presenting presenting the um, illusion and allowing people to believe what you've presented. Hence the term reasonable subterfuge means basically police can lie. They can do certain things. It's reasonable to, to make the case. One thing that amazes me about this, Sherry, is I work plain clothes. I did, I was a surveillance guy. You know, I was very good at that part of it. I was lousy at undercover. You mentioned a couple of times doing undercover. I'm sure you did a lot of it in your career. And then there are people that did deep cover where they were undercover infiltrating mobs for years and people in America don't seem to know the difference. Right. And there is there are big differences in the types of undercover and, and the level of exposure at each of those levels. It, it's an art. It's really something that the DEA does very well. Our local police officers do it really well, some of them. Uh, and we love working with them because of the resources and fresh ideas, obviously, for undercover. So what was the outcome, the adjudication of this case? I, I understand it's been resolved, right? Yes. So once we had gotten into to the good graces of the maid members, they started confessing, they started telling us things about other murders. So we have now recorded conversations where they're talking about other murders that they ordered or uh, executed themselves. And so we had a, a bigger case that was started off as a narcotics case. And we did have 35 pounds of methamphetamine in here as well. And we seized 56 guns. But now we have these serious murders because... The area, San Bernardino, was so overrun with gangs and violence, now we were actually able to clean some things up. So at the end, the culmination, we I wrote uh, search warrants for 43 locations, and we had over 400 police officers respond on a, on a takedown day, and we took out uh, 123 gangsters uh, that we arrested. We seized $2.1 million worth of assets and vehicles and cash. Uh, and and got a lot of dope off the street as well. Amazing work, amazing job. How long did that take from start to finish? Seven months um, from the very first idea until the the takedown. That's actually pretty quick. In in terms of investigations of that scope and size and magnitude, they can last years. Uh, I imagine with all the violence and the threats of violence and murders, that kind of pushed things along and made it a bit of a priority. Right, and we also didn't want to waste resources. So thankfully, we had local police officers who were passionate and who were willing to work. And they really gave, nobody slept very much in those seven months. We, we really did 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we used every investigative technique that we possibly could to make sure that we had really great cases on all these people. Amazing, amazing work. I want to shift gears a little bit. You and your personal part of you and your job. 
going from undercover where you are staging a murder of someone so to get the heat off them so to speak and then you go home and be a spouse and a mom and isn't that a tough transition it is and but there are techniques to really make it work um during this case that i was talking about i actually was pregnant at which nobody knew uh, except that I was chubbier, but when you work with men, they don't say anything about you getting chubby. <laughs> Not the married the one ones, at least. Yeah. They know better. They're going to get knocked out if you say something stupid like that. Yes, but once you have children and once you have a family, your priorities shift a little, right? So, so you're more worried about your home. But I, I really do this job now for my kids because it, they live here too, and I have to make sure that they're safe. So... It makes me more passionate. It makes me try harder because I know that the possible victims could be my own my own family. Yeah. So making the transition, coming home, and and now being a mom and caring about artwork and school and when you were you know just pointing a gun at somebody three hours prior is hard. It's it's a difficult thing, but there are techniques for it, and there are there are things that you learn to do to to survive that and, and to be able to be sweet. And then, you know, there's some days, um, thankfully my husband is in law enforcement as well, so there's some days he just knows, and, and I just know. Like, when it comes to dinner, we've been making decisions all day long, nobody cares what we're having for dinner. And so it's hard when you have a spouse who cares what's for dinner, when you can't participate in that conversation because your de- decision-making skills are tapped out for the day. Yeah, uh, I, I can relate to that for, for certain, and if you ask my wife, she'd say, she didn't know me when I was in law enforcement, but she knows exactly what you're talking about now. That uh, right. and it doesn't take it doesn't take a lot sometimes just to revert back to that guy who wants to isolate and uh, not talk to people. And, and I always have to do I don't want to say battle with this over word. I always have to be aware of it and, and kind of over overcompensate. Before we close, is there anything you're out, you're involved in? Law enforcement, you were a cop, you're a DEA, you're a mom, you're, you're a spouse, and are there other things that you're involved with as well? Because I wouldn't be shocked if you weren't. Sure, I'm involved in literally everything. I'm a yes person. I, if you ask me to do something, I say yes, because I feel like if you're asking me for help, you really need it. Especially if you're a good guy, I'm going to help you. So, yes, I, I, I spread myself super thin, but I focus really intently on the things that matter to me. And I think one of the things that matters to you from our prior conversation and reading your resume is uh, finding new agents that really want to get into this field that are really motivated. What do they do? So DEA is an amazing family. Dysfunctional, for sure, but still an amazing family, just like all of law enforcement is. And so for me, recruiting is a passion because I need to ensure our future. I need to find my replacement. And I'm constantly looking for the right people who are tenacious, passionate, believe in the mission, and are focused for the the long haul to stay in there and keep fighting. We are hiring. We are hiring in all cores. We have special agent positions, diversion investigators, which are awesome jobs, especially for retired police. We have chemists, which is an awesome job. Every chemist I meet is fun. And intel analysts. Uh, Also, our administrative staff and support staff, our business operations folks. We're always looking for those as well. And if someone's interested, they don't call you. Where do they go? 
USA Jobs is where we advertise. We have a recruiter right here in Phoenix. If you go online, DEA.gov, it gives all the local recruiters. There is one near you, I promise, because we are everywhere. Sherry, thanks so much for being on the show and for your service. It's all very much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. When you get there, click like and follow. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.